We're going to be jumping into the book of Revelation. I know the book of Revelation is intense. I did hear from a lot of preachers. I had one preacher when I told him what I was doing. He's like, good luck. Just shaking his head. And I'm like, yes, that's the encouragement I need for this book. But I did read this story. I thought it was not true until I read the news article. And there was a preacher preaching through the book of Revelation. And because there can be a little bit of controversy about what things are and what they mean and how it all works together, there was some guy in his congregation that got so upset that after the sermon, he went out to his car, got a gun and shot the preacher. Yeah. So I just want you to know I'm taking my life into my hands this morning. I realize that hazard duty pay expected. It's a high stakes endeavor. So if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, why not start in the middle? You know, why start at the beginning? Let's start right in the middle where it's really juicy and confusing. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Oh boy. All right, here we go. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and the mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Makes sense to me, right? Seems clear. Moving on. Let's talk about something else. No, you read this is a perfect example. What? What is going on? This is a far cry from the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want or for God so loved the world. I mean, this seems like it's in a different universe altogether of Scripture. So, you know, what, what do we do with stuff like this? I've got a video. It's just a short little video, no sound, that I'm going to have you guys play. It describes or shows anamorphic art. Anamorphic art. Go ahead and play that if you would. So you see this from different angles. Now, when you first saw that first image, who's this? LeBron James. That's Michael Jordan. Oh my goodness, we've got to educate the youth. It's Michael Jordan. But if you look at it from a different perspective, it transforms and there's another shape. And this is a very specific kind of sculpture. So you see who's number 23? Well, I mean, the most famous, certainly, is Michael Jordan. Yeah, and that was a picture of Michael Jordan. That first picture, what was it made out of? Shoes, which Jordan has his own line or brand of shoes, right? So you look at that, and you're like, okay, we recognize that as Michael Jordan because that's an iconic picture of him dunking that he's turned into a brand, turned into a logo. So we have to have that little piece of knowledge, and then the shoes, and then the angle, and then we look at it. But if you were to just kind of look at it, you'd be like, I don't quite get what's going on. I'm not sure I understand because I'm just seeing some shoes hanging. I don't know. This just seems like random modern. Art. But if you look at it from the right perspective, then it starts to make sense. But you have to have some other ideas in place. You have to have maybe a little bit of sports knowledge, and it comes all together when you're looking at that sculpture from the right perspective, and then it begins to make sense. See, I think a lot of people read the book of Revelation, and it looks like a jumbled mess because they're looking at it from the wrong perspective. And it just looks like just bits and pieces of something that doesn't make any sense. And they try to squint their eyes and to get some idea of what it might be talking about. But if you step back and follow what Scripture's talking about and look at it from the right perspective, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying that the pieces begin to fall into place and we begin to understand what's going on. Revelation is not a play-by-play guidebook for the end of the world. It is not 
a play-by-play guidebook for the end of the world, which I think most people think it is. That's how they read it. Revelation just talks about the future from my vantage point. And it's no wonder it seems so confusing. Revelation is not a play-by-play guidebook for the end of the world. And when we treat it that way, we get all kinds of wild stuff. We read into it all kinds of wild ideas. Elon Musk is going to inject your baby with a microchip so he can track it for global world population. Or the government is making attack drones. And Saddam Hussein, I remember back in uh, Gulf War, number one, Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist and then he died and the guys had people had to come up with a new who's the Antichrist I've heard the internet is the beast or Tom Hanks I heard is the Antichrist one time Tom Hanks how in the world what where did that come from or the iPhone because you use your iPhone to buy and sell things that's really the mark of the beast and it's like it's like reading a Mad Libs for conspiracy theories and I think because of that people tend to fixate on the book of Revelation or a lot of us tend to completely avoid the book of Revelation. Rick Ashley is a preacher in Texas, and I was listening to him talk about this, and he said some people act like the Bible only has 65 books instead of 66 because they just ignore the book of Revelation. And he goes, but other people, and these are the scarier people, act like the Bible only has one book, and that's the only book that they pay attention to. And both approaches miss the point of what the Bible's trying to do and what Revelation's trying to do and miss what Revelation has to offer. So here's what we're going to do. For, a, for five weeks, unless something goes haywire and we need to do more, for five weeks, uh, we're going to be at a pretty high level of the book of Revelation. So we're not going to like get real down into the nitty gritty, but we're going to talk about what's going on and try to move ourselves to a better vantage point to get a clearer picture of what this book is doing. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, I guess the, the mark of the beast on your phones, turn to the book of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Revelation wasn't written to confuse, but to clarify. It wasn't written to obscure, it was written to reveal. That's where we get the name. But the idea is that the followers of Jesus could be bold in really tremendously difficult circumstances. And if we read it for any other purpose, we are missing the point. If we read it to get the secrets of the future, we're missing the point because Revelation is written to encourage believers to stand firm in what they believe and what God has instilled in them despite what is going on in the world around them. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to, we're going to hopefully quickly, seven reminders for reading Revelation from the correct vantage point. And that's the paper that you have with you. Seven reminders for reading Revelation from the correct vantage point. Ready? Number one, number one, and we're gonna spend the most time on this because it's kind of the most crucial. Revelation is a letter. Revelation is a letter, okay? 
Now, when you read the book of Revelation, it doesn't read like a typical letter. You've never written a letter like this. You've never written an email like this. But Revelation is a letter. Uh, Revelation 1-4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. He's writing a letter to these, these seven churches, meaning that there are real people who are going out to their mailboxes. This is not how they did it in the first century. But for the for sake of imagination, going to their mailboxes, opening it up, pulling it out, opening up a letter from John to this. Meaning John, as he writes things down, he's thinking about real people in real situations and stuff that they are really dealing with. So this is a cliche, but it's a good cliche. The Bible, especially the letters of the Bible, including this letter, it isn't written to you, but it is written for you. You've heard that before. You're reading somebody else's mail, and that's exactly right. We're reading something that was intended for somebody else, but there's these eternal realities revealed within it. So it's not written to us, but it's written for us. So just kind of imagine, if you can, the average human in the first century what life might have been like. Uh, and you've heard a little bit of rumor about Jesus, maybe, but maybe not, because he was just some obscure rabbi in some remote corner of the Roman Empire. But you lived, you likely lived in the Roman Empire. And the Roman military had just rolled into town, and they had just crushed everybody in their path. They were so dominant, nothing could stop them. And when they would come in and they would dominate militarily, they would install, you've heard this, this is this stuff you can read in middle school history, they would install the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. And the peace of Rome did create stability, but it wasn't stability, it wasn't peace like tranquility, it was peace like you better toe the line and if you don't, there's going to be problems. Anybody remember the phrase hearts and minds from the first... Uh, Gulf War. Does anybody remember? Some of you are like, I wasn't even alive then. You remember that phrase, hearts and minds? American soldiers would use it. The idea is, is that when America would go into a place and we would dominate militarily, somehow, it's crazy, but somehow the local people didn't really like it. It wasn't their favorite thing in the world. And America knew that in order to make anything happen, they would have to uh, get the hearts and minds of the local people. So it became kind of just a shortened phrase to describe uh, an idea called pacification, meaning when you go into a place, you've got, you can't just come in and dominate because that little seed of rebellion is going to be wrapped up in the hearts of every person and eventually that's going to get out. So you have to figure out how do we get these people on our side? How do we pacify them? How do we win their hearts and minds? Minds. And so what they did in Rome is they tied it to religion. They found that that worked really, really well. They're mo the most effective tool. And so they would do things like the uh, build the Pantheon in Rome, which was a temple to all the gods. It's just all the gods in Rome. So you didn't want to attack the place that had the temple to all the gods, because that could give you really bad luck. So they would do stuff like this. And it just kept morphing. So what would happen is, and again, you can read this in any middle school history textbook. The emperors, when they would die, the, uh, the government would set up a temple in some conquered region to that emperor, and they would promote that emperor to a god. They would say, you know, Tiberius is now a god, and we're building a temple in Ephesus or wherever, so that these people were now becoming involved in what was called the imperial cult. 
you can see where this is going. And then you would have to worship at that temple. And if you didn't worship at the temple, you risked making the Roman officials pretty upset at you. In fact, you risked making a lot of the citizens around you pretty upset at you. So can you imagine what it was like to be a Christian in this environment? In fact, they, it got so bad that in order to do anything, you had to offer sacrifices at different temples, including temples to dead emperors. So imagine that. To be, a, to be a lawyer, you didn't take the bar. You had to go worship at the temple of whoever, and then you got into the lawyer's guild. Or to be an electrician, of course, I guess they didn't have electricians, but you weren't in an electrician's union. You had to worship at the temple of so-and-so so you could be involved, so you could buy and sell and trade, and you could do all that. You could be involved in, in the economy. And so you can imagine as Christians, Christians were really wrestling. Can you imagine how Christians who are singing to God and trying to worship God are now having to deal with like, how do we operate in society where they're asking for our allegiance and our worship? We get all the way to Domitian and Domitian decided, hey, why wait till I'm dead to be promoted to a God? Why not do it now? I mean, why should I not receive all the benefits of being a God right now? And totally, if that option is on the menu, you can see why a human would do this. And so there was a historian named Suetonius that wrote in the first century concurrently with Domitian and wrote that this guy was a jerk. And he would start all his letters saying, I, Domitian, your Lord and God, command you to whatever. And he would just actually literally write letters calling himself Lord and God. And, there, and people didn't like him very much, which is probably why he ended up getting murdered. <laughs> so imagine the peace, quote unquote, of Rome is right at your fingertips. Your, your ability to make a decent living, maybe to get your kids in a better school or any school. All the pressure, all the social pressures go away. Your neighbors being suspicious of you. It all goes away if you just pledge allegiance to this, this guy who's claiming to be a god. You don't even have to believe that he really is a god. You just have to act like it. You just have to offer the sacrifice. You just have to do the temple ceremony. That's all you have to do. And then all that pressure goes away. In fact, in fact, you didn't even have to renounce Yahweh. You didn't even have to deny Jesus. You just added Domitian on top of the other gods. That's all you had to do. Imagine the social pressure of just wanting to provide for your family, just wanting your children to be accepted, and all you have to do. I can imagine it was a tremendous temptation for people to feel like all I have to do, I just a quick little ceremony in the temple and then I'm out and then I can be, I can make money and my kids can be accepted. I mean, just imagine you're involved in, it, all you have to do is this little thing. And in fact, John writes in the book of Revelation chapter two, he writes that some people had given in. Look at what he says in verse 14 of chapter two. Nevertheless, he's complimented these people. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, Old Testament reference, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Meaning that there were probably people in the church who were saying, you know what, it's no big deal. Just offer a little sacrifice, do a little ceremony, and you're free and clear. Don't worry about it. You don't have to deny Jesus. It's totally fine. And John is saying there's people in your church who are encouraging you to do this. But then he writes, listen, verse 7 of chapter 2, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. 
meaning who overcomes those pressures, who stands against those pressures. That's who he's writing to. He's writing to people that are in some, they're in crisis, and they could alleviate all that tension, all that stress, if they just, just give in a little bit. Can you imagine how the wheels would be turning, how easy it would be to justify just a little sacrifice? So this is what John is writing into. So when you read the book of Revelation and you're reading these big themes about beasts and monsters, those aren't really beasts and monsters. They're, they're powers that are exerting pressure on Christians to, to, to dominate them, to, to destroy them, to devour them, really to cause them to give up. Peace of Rome right at your fingertips, all you have to do. And John's writing into all that. So number one, it's a letter. Number two, it's an apocalypse. It's an apocalypse, which I know is a word we associate with uh, end of the world stuff, but the word apocalypse is just the Greek word for revelation. That's all it is. It's, it literally means the opposite of hiding. So you take hide and unhide, and that's the word revelation. So it's a type of literature. Um, how many of you have read George Orwell's Animal Farm? probably in eighth grade, right? Eighth grade literature. So you're, you remember reading that? Animal Farm? I'm, I still remember the twist ending. Well, it wasn't really a twist ending. I'm like, oh, the pigs are the bad guys. And I just remember the end of the book thinking like, whoa, I, I, the, the, the allegory, it, it all made sense to me. The animals conspire to rebel against Farmer Jones because all animals should be equal, right? Remember that? All animals are equal, except some animals are more equal than others. No? It's been too, you should reread it. It's a great book. Anyway, imagine you take Animal Farm and a Godzilla movie, and maybe a Marvel superhero movie, and combine them into one genre of literature, and you get apocalyptic literature. This is where it comes from. It's just this, it's, it's allegory, but it, it combines these huge themes of good and evil that are represented like as beasts and dragons. Um, and it's all combined into having this symbolic meaning. So historical events are represented as uh, things like natural disasters. So it'll talk about an earthquake. It's not talking about an earthquake. It's talking about some earth-shaking change that's happening to the world. Uh, uh, numbers and colors have symbolic meaning, but they're all designed to represent something real. So think back to Revelation 13.1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns on its horns, and on each head had a blasphemous name. The beast resembled a leopard... But had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and throne and great authority. You can begin to see like, okay, there's something else going on here. He's not talking about how at the end of the world there will be a Godzilla-like creature coming out of the sea. And No, he's, ta he's describing real events using allegorical language. It's, it's an apocalypse. And it's not even the only apocalyptic writing in the Bible. The book of Daniel has a lot of it. Uh, the book of Zechariah, Ezekiel. Um, and it certainly wasn't the only apocalyptic writing during the time of John. People were familiar with this genre. It's just us thousands of years later. Imagine 2,000 years from now, someone finds the book Animal Farm, and they're like, wow, thousands of years ago, pigs could talk? That's crazy. You know, wait, that's, you're reading it wrong. It's a type of literature. Um, and yes, there are predictions, but the predictions are outcome. Like, is the, is the dragon going to win the ultimate battle? No. When you're watching a Batman movie, are you thinking, I think the Joker might win this time? No. 
the Joker's always going to lose. They're going to make it look grim. They're going to make it look like it's Batman's on the ropes. But out of nine movies they've made so far, Batman has won every single time. And that's the same thing that happens in the book of Revelation. Is the beast going to win? No. Is it going to look grim for a while? Sure. But in the end, we know what's going to happen. There are going to be outcomes. It does predict outcomes. Faithfulness to God will pay off. Number three. Number three. It's Hebrew Bible. It's Hebrew Bible. Um, I remember being with a group of guys, a college buddy, uh, and we were doing, I don't remember, we were like doing some work project or something silly, and one of my friends, Billy, was holding a PVC pipe, and there was another kid, he was probably a high school kid, and his name was Luke, and he was on the other end of the PVC pipe. And Billy, you know, I don't, he's probably in his 20s at this point, he realizes that you could talk into the PVC pipe and you sound like a robot. So he's like, you know, making silly noises. And then he realizes, oh, there's a kid named Luke on the other end of this pipe. And so he says into this pipe, Luke, I am your father, right? Does anybody know that reference? Yeah, you guys know that reference. I don't want to spoil anything for you. Uh, but the kid on the other end of the pipe had never seen Star Wars. And he's like very confused. And he's looking at Billy and he's like, no, you're not. <laughs> now, for, for Luke to understand what Billy was doing, Luke has to have a whole world of knowledge. He has to know about Star Wars and Darth Vader, and he has to know that there's a hero named Luke Skywalker, and he has to know about a pretty famous spoiler in the movie, just in case you haven't watched it. And Luke did not get it, and he was very confused as to what Billy was trying to do. I want you to read Daniel. Flip over to Daniel chapter 7. I'll take you a second or navigate over there in your phones. Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. All right, this is all Old Testament stuff. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. And then it goes on to specify what those beasts were. And then it says in verse 17, often the Bible defines itself for us, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise up from the earth. And you read that and you're like, wait a second, that sounds pretty familiar. People who understood the Bible and who had read the Bible realized that when you read Revelation 13, you're importing ideas from the Old Testament and using them to define what John is doing in the book of Revelation. So when you read Revelation chapter 13 and he's talking about, wait, there's a beast coming out of the sea and there's, it's this mega beast and it's a combination of all the beasts that Daniel is talking about. Oh, very interesting. You're bringing in these ideas. It's going to be a mega kingdom. It's going to look like a dominant kingdom that existed at the time of John. What possibly could that be? What global world empire existed during the life of John? Hmm. I wonder. Well, read a fifth grade history book. So when you read the book of Revelation, you have to understand that John is just remixing ideas from literature they were all familiar with in the Bible. And so it's really not a super great idea to read the book of Revelation and not read the book of Ezekiel and not read the book of Daniel. All right. Uh, number four. Number four. It's not linear. The book of Revelation is not 
linear. This is really hard for us modern Western Americans because we were just taught everything is linear. A, A, B, C, that's how we're taught. We're not taught to think differently. And so when we say, oh, that person thinks out of the box, what we're saying is they're a non-linear thinker. Well, John was a non-linear writer. He had a goal and a purpose and an intention, but he was writing in a way that it takes us a little bit of work to understand. If you've been down to Cottage Grove, you have, have you ever gotten lost down there? That place is confusing because whatever the city planners were doing when they laid out the city streets, it doesn't make sense to me. Because I, and I took a picture. I actually have a picture of a street corner in, uh, in Cottage Grove. This is literally, if you can't see clearly, this is where Ivy Stone Avenue South intersects with Ivy Stone Avenue South. And you're like, what were you smoking when you laid out this city? What in the world? How were you supposed to figure that out? Just go to the corner of the same two streets. Well, it's because the streets kind of wind around and then they wind back on themselves. And I can just imagine it's a nightmare from delivery drivers. Like, what is going on? It's so crazy. It's so confusing. Why did you do it that way? It's a very good question. Why did they do it that way? The book of Revelation is a little bit more like that, where you're following a a train of thought and then it will all of a sudden kind of wind back on itself. For example, Revelation chapter 12 talks about the birth of Jesus. Revelation chapter 4 talks about Jesus dying on the cross or being represented as a slaughtered lamb. You're like, those aren't in order. John's doing something else in the book of Revelation. Think of it more like instant replay at a football game. If you didn't understand what instant replay was, and you're like, wow, they're doing the exact same thing they did a few seconds ago, but they're doing it much slower. What is going on? They've done it, now they've done it three times because in football, the action only lasts about 11 seconds, and then you get about 30 seconds of replay from different angles. And sometimes what you saw in full speed doesn't look anything like what you saw in the replay. Have you ever done this? Like, that was clearly a catch. He obviously caught it. How could those refs, they're so dumb. And then you watch it from a different angle in instant replay, and you're like, oh, he didn't catch it at all. I was clearly wrong. The book of Revelation is like that. You'll be reading along, and sometimes John will slow down, or he'll say, I'm going to zoom in on this one incident and expand it. And it just, it doesn't mean that you can't figure out what the book of Revelation is doing. It just means you have to pay attention. In, in the same way, you can figure out how to navigate Cottage Grove. You just have to pay a little attention. It's the problem is, is, is uh, authors will see some global apocalyptic event and they'll be like, well, that has to be in the book of Revelation. And so they'll go digging through, oh, tsunami, that's got to be a tsunami. That's got to be an earthquake. That's got to be this political event. And then once they've staked their flag on that event, then they try to force the rest of world history in around it. And it just never works because the book of Revelation is not written that way. All right, number five. It is not just about the future or the end. It is not just about the future or the end. Those events are contained in it. We're going to talk about the end uh, in week five, but it's not just about those things. Let me just give you three quick verses because you just read Revelation. It says it. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, John, to show his servants what must soon take place. Do you think John was thinking, oh yeah, 2,000 years from now, that's when things are going to kick off? No. Soon take place, meaning in John's lifetime. Revelation 22, 4, this is the other end of the book, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Revelation 1, 19, write therefore, John, you need to write down what you have seen, what is happening now, and what will take place later. Revelation 
is not just about the future or the end. Uh, number six, it's a revelation. I know, I know. You waited till number six to hear that. Mind blown, I know. But again, it's the opposite of the word hidden, meaning that John's goal is to reveal something that's true that maybe isn't obvious to us. And so as you read through the book, you start to see themes. You start to say, hey, what looks powerful, what looks unstoppable may actually be weak. What looks weak may actually be strong. What looks grim may actually be hopeful. What looks on the verge of dying may be on the verge of springing to life. What looks like defeat, isn't this the message of the cross, may actually be victory. The values of heaven tend to be reverse of the values of the world around us. And so Revelation is trying to clear the, the, the illusion away and say, this is what's really happening. I know it doesn't look like it. I know our world looks like it's going south and things are terrible and the church is going to fall apart and everything's awful and nobody's faithful anymore. But that's not the real story. Revelation is revealing what is true, even if it doesn't look true from your vantage point. And number seven, the final one, number seven, is revelation is about faithfulness. Revelation is about faithfulness. Uh, it deals with these huge themes. Things are not they, as they seem. God is in control. Jesus is the conquering lamb. But all those truths have one purpose, one goal. So revelation talks about really intense cultural, political pressures and shifts that are taking place in John's lifetime. Does that sound like anything familiar? Intense cultural and, and political shifts that are taking place during our lifetime? I mean, if you were to rewind time just five years ago, things are so different now. 10 years ago, things are so different now. This is what's so hard for Christians to understand. We have a tendency to think, well, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50, that was when things were good and now things are bad. No, things are different. Some things are worse, some things are better. And Christians aren't to be guided by what things were like 50 years ago or concerned about culture now. We're to be guided by this conquered lamb to live and follow after him. I'm not fighting against my current culture unless my current culture is leading me away from Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to engage in some sort of like like fight for the heart and soul of our nation unless it's leading me or my children away from Jesus Christ. It's about faithfulness. All these truths have one purpose and one goal. I mean, things are changing in our world. It, 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 things are very different. I mean, even a couple years ago, even pre-COVID, things seemed so different than they are now. And it's, some Christians are freaking out. And they don't want, know what to do. And in that panic, they're making choices that aren't great, that don't look like Jesus. But Revelation forces us to ask the question of what kind of follower am I? Am I the type of follower who feels like I'm running scared and we're losing, we're losing the battle, the church is failing? The Bible has told us so many times that the gates of Hades will not defeat what God is building. The church is not dying. Maybe you're struggling with being faithful, but the church is not dying. God is still in control. And that's what the book of Revelation is trying to do, is trying to, to pull back the curtain so we can see reality so that we can remain faithful. 
If it's a battle, it's a battle to see things as they really are and to challenge those things that are wrong and hold firm to those things that are right. But what kind of follower am I? What kind of follower are you? I mean, think about that. Think about this kind of question. What kind of follower are you? One who's just totally given in to the world around us, and there's just very little difference between your values and the values of people who don't share your faith? Are there areas in your life where you've given up and compromised and fallen away? Are there parts of your life that just do not reflect who Jesus is and you just aren't dealing with them? You aren't fixing them? You aren't changing them? You aren't challenging them? Are you allowing yourself to be around faithful Christians who will look at your life and say, hey, you got some things you need to fix. You got some adjustments you need to make. Or are you avoiding all that because you don't want to mess with that because you're kind of happy and content with the way things are? What kind of follower are you? I think it's a really challenging question for us to ask. Am I just sort of picking my feet up and flowing along with culture? Or am I I challenging? And that's what Revelation wants us to dig into, is what kind of follower are we? Who who are we as as it relates to God? So my my encouragement to you this week is to read the first three chapters of the book of Revelation just with these seven perspectives in mind, to, to dig into it, to think about it, to think through it, and ask yourself, what kind of follower are you right now? Right now, how's your life? How's it looking? How's it look to somebody else? How are your choices? How's your morality? How's your ethics? How does it look? How's your relationships? How's your marriage? How's your parenting? How's it doing in the midst of the culture that we live in? What are you instilling in your children and in your children's children? What kind of follower are you? Because the truth is, when you read the book of Revelation, God wins. He absolutely wins. And at the end of it all, you want to be on that side. You want him to be able to look at you and say, good and faithful servant.